This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveRight, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, treachery, and survival at the edge of the world by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has delayed implementing a series of measures that would drastically overhaul the country's Supreme Court. But Israelis continue to protest in the streets. Well, the demonstrations have been growing since January when Netanyahu proposed sweeping changes. And a week ago, they reached a fever pitch and led to the shutdown of the nation's schools and airports. Now Netanyahu's coalition is in talks with the opposition to try to reach a compromise. But there's mounting pressure from all sides, including liberal secular Israelis, far-right sympathizers, members of the military, and from the United States. Most recently, the Israeli cabinet has authorized a 2,000-person National Guard to deal with unrest in Palestinian communities in Israel. It will soon determine whether the force will be commanded by far-right National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir. How will Prime Minister Netanyahu proceed, and what does the future of democracy in Israel look like? We'll get into all that and more after the break. I'm David Gurra, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveRight, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, treachery, and survival at the edge of the world by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. This message comes from Capital One, presenting sponsor of the 2024 Tiny Desk Contest. Earlier this year, unsigned musicians from around the country submitted their original songs for the 10th annual Tiny Desk Contest. The panel of judges are hard at work picking standout entries, and you can follow along and choose your favorite videos as well. The winner gets to play their very own Tiny Desk concert, then headline a tour with NPR Music this summer. Want to come along for the ride? Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more, then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top-10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. This is my voice. It can tell you a lot about me. And I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get into the conversation by welcoming our first guest. Joining us now is Michael Brenner. He's the director of the Center for Israel Studies at American University. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, David. Well, let's start with the significance of Benjamin Netanyahu's decision here to delay the judicial overhaul rather than cancel it altogether. Help us understand the significance of that and and what you see as its future. 
Well, first of all, the judicial overhaul really would have changed or might still change the composition of Israeli democracy. It would change the balance of power and um, and clearly weaken an independent judiciary. And what I see as the upbeat in this whole picture is the strength of the feeling among many people, uh, almost a million people uh, were on the streets so far, uh, protesting against this overhaul. So this was certainly one factor that influenced uh, Netanyahu's decision to um, halt it. Uh, but maybe more important was the fact that uh, there was a threat to the army, that some, um, especially our soldiers in reserve, uh, refused to serve, and to the economy. It was clear that, uh, that, that that also would have a negative effect on Israel's economy. And, of course, the reaction from the United States and President Biden. All of this together um, caused... Prime Minister Netanyahu to do what he should have done in the first place, uh, to halt for now uh, the discussion um, of this overhaul. Michael, you've set the table for us wonderfully. We'll get to all of that here over the, the course of the hour. But uh, for listeners who haven't been following this closely, uh, what, what kind of changes has he proposed to make to, to the country's Supreme Court over these last few months? So there, there are quite a few, and we're only talking about the changes, uh, the judicial changes, there are mm-hmm. others as well. There are three main factors, I would say. That's the judicial selection, that's the judicial review, and that's the Knesset override. Uh, in terms of the judicial selection, uh, the government, especially uh, the Minister of Justice, has proposed that the um, governing coalition, the majority in the Knesset, should basically have the last word over who would become a Supreme Court justice. The judicial review uh, means basically that some of the rights that uh, the Supreme Court has now will be taken away in terms of judicial review. And the Knesset override, in a way, makes sure again that uh, even if the handpicked justices don't uh, rule in favor of the majority of the Knesset, the Knesset majority of 61 can override uh, the decisions of the Supreme Court. In the country of Israel, what kind of power does the Supreme Court have there? Uh, how, how imperfect is the analogy to the Supreme Court that we have here in the United States? Well, every country obviously ha- has a different system and it's not the same. But the um, the Supreme Court has had in the last years, especially since the 1990s, um, a, a quite uh, important power. And, and it, it has shown it in not in too many cases, but in important cases, in in cases that um, concern human rights, also in cases that uh, concern the occupation, in concerns uh, also individual citizens. So, in 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 on many levels, the Supreme Court has shown independence, and is often conceived by the right as almost a last bastion of the liberal or even left-leaning um, society in Israel. If that's true, I'm not sure, but certainly it has shown independence, um, and that's something a lot of people in Israel understand is now threatened. Right now, the Knesset, uh, Israel's legislature, is a coalition that's made up of, of several parties, and the opposition leader there, uh, Yair Lapid, uh, has condemned the prime minister's proposal publicly in, in recent months. At a news conference in February, he said, quote, if this legislation passes, the democratic chapter in the life of the state will end. 
Let's talk about the coalition first. Perhaps you can understand how, how patchwork it is, um, how many groups are, are assembled as part of it. Absolutely. So <laughs> every single coalition in Israel usually is a lot of patchwork. There are only 120 members of the Knesset, of the parliament, but there are usually more than 10 parties represented. So you have um, basically three main partners in this um, government, the right-wing Likud, which is the most moderate party now, and Benjamin Netanyahu is one of the most moderate politicians in this government. We have to understand that. His partners are more on the right and more religious. So he has um, two ultra-Orthodox parties in this coalition, and he has also parties who identify as national religious. That means that many of them represent the settlers in, in Israel. They are the most radical right wing parties in this government. And he has to please his partners to stay in this coalition. So what it was another factor, actually, in him, in his decision to halt the overhaul, um, was the fact that he saw his support dropping among the public. And, um, and he reacted to that. At the same time, there were signs, actually, just this morning, there, um, one of them more problematic ministers in the government. He, he, he was this, 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 the Supreme Court actually said he could not serve because he had been um, he had a corruption charge, but he had he had served a sentence. Mm. And he, uh, Minister Derry, uh, said that the coalition was actually uh, threatened of falling apart. And he said that this law would not have passed in the Knesset with the coalition votes. So we see it's a very fragile coalition in itself. And there's always a talk that um, even even with Netanyahu staying prime minister, there could be other parties replacing, let's say, the far, maybe center-right parties could be replacing the far-right parties. It's always an option in Israel. Mm. And Prime Minister Netanyahu said that he pressed pause on this legislation to avoid creating a rift between the Israeli people. In a statement released last Monday, he said, quote, there is an extremist minority that is prepared to tear our country to pieces. It's using violence and incitement. It's threatening to harm elected officials. It's stoking civil war, and it's calling for refusal to serve, which uh, is a terrible crime. You, you mentioned public support just a minute ago, Michael, and I sort of wonder how Israelis protesting this overall has brought Palestinians into their actions. How, how, how unified a, a political protest is this? Yeah, that, that's very interesting. By the way, uh, referring to the quote you just mm. mentioned, um, the peaceful the demonstrations, the the protests have really been largely very peaceful, and uh, the most uh, it seems most of the violent protests came from the more right wing demonst- uh, protests that mm. were also organized. Um, the Palestinians, that's a good question. The Palestinians have mostly stayed out of this. Um, many of them say, well, for us, it doesn't make a big difference anyway, which government is in, because we're always second-class citizens. But it's, I would say that's not totally true. Um, when, if we look at the last uh, coalition before Netanyahu, um, the last government was composed of many different parties. Among them was also an Arab-Israeli party. Um, and I think it is very important um, for I would say that whatever remains from the left in Israel, but also from the more center parties in Israel, to look at the Arab citizens of Israel or Palestinian citizens of Israel, as many of them call themselves. Um, in a way, it is ironic, but it might be them who might be necessary to rescue Israeli democracy. Um, many of them 
are are not radical or not uh, anti-Israel. They are citizens of Israel, and many of them have an interest in a um, thriving Israeli democracy, just as many Jewish citizens of mm-hmm. Israel. Arab citizens are more than 20% of Israel. So I think they are the real questions. Will they actually come to help to save Israeli democracy? Mm. Let's take a moment now and add two new voices to the conversation. And I'm going to bring in two other guests now as we continue our conversation. Yossi Meckelberg is an associate fellow at Chatham House. He's in the think tanks Middle East and North Africa program and joins us now from Tel Aviv. Yossi, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. And Ambassador Mark Regev is the chair of the Abba Iban Institute at Reichman University. He was the senior advisor for foreign affairs and international communications to Israel's prime minister. Mark, thanks for being here as well. My pleasure. Well, the day before Prime Minister Netanyahu announced he was delaying his proposal, he fired Israel's defense minister, who had called publicly for suspending the legislation to protect national security interests. Yossi Meckelberg, how pivotal was that moment uh, in this recent history of just a few months of, uh, of what happened there? And, of course, the prime minister did eventually uh, hold off. He did shelve this legislation. Well, those are very interesting times right now in Israel, but let me remind the listener, he actually hasn't fired the defense minister. He uh-huh. said that he would fire, the, but he hasn't sent him the letter, which according to the law. So it's actually a, a, an indication of the chaos that right now, this current government, that's one day, uh, it was announced publicly, uh, that's that the defense minister, in very sensitive times in Israel, security-wise, that the defense minister, that's again, a former general, major general in Israel, is, is, is fired, but then the letter hasn't been uh, sent. And then we're hearing today that he decided not to lose space, only to suspend the, the firing of the defense minister until uh, uh, another notice. This is, I think it's, it's really indication when the people in the streets really fighting for Israel democracy, uh, day in, day out, uh, week, week in, week out, the government is busier with keeping itself together. Mark Reg, if you saw the reaction to that, of course, the, the protests that ramped up blocking Tel Aviv's main highway for hours, this demonstration in front of the prime minister's residence in, in Jerusalem, what does the public's intense reaction to that news, uh, that would be firing, I guess, if, if we can contextualize it properly, what does it say to you, just the way that the reaction has been here over these last few weeks? Lou, we had a really crazy week uh, in Israeli <laughs> politics uh, 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 last week. There's no doubt about it, and uh, that maybe the high point was that uh, the the stated firing, though, as Yossi said, it it didn't actually follow through of the defence minister. Uh, I, I think if you ask me where the Israeli public opinion is, well, there was a poll uh, just at the end of last week that uh, that showed 58% of Israelis. This was on Israel's probably most watched news program, the Channel 12 News. Uh, they said 58% of Israelis support the reforms through consensus. And so this process that is now happening under the auspices of the Israeli president, and as you know, Israel's president is is not an executive president. Mm -hmm. He's a ceremonial president usually, but he has now gathered the large parties around from the coalition and the opposition. And the idea is over the next few weeks to try to work out some sort of consensus on the reforms. Now, whether that is possible or not remains to be seen, but it's clear the majority of Israelis want the process to succeed. Yossi Beckelberg, the news of the day is the, the authorization or the go-ahead to create a National Guard. And I'd love to get your perspective on that. And uh, this is not an idea that, that hasn't been floated previously, but it certainly is moving along more than it has in, in the past. Um, 
what, what do you make of that move? And we were talking earlier just about fortifying or keeping together this, this patchwork quilt of, of a coalition. Um, what does it say to you about the integrity of that cloth, of that patchwork at this moment? Yeah, and if I may, only one word of the issue of consensus. Yep. But, uh, I agree with Mark that consensus is important, but actually most Israelis were against the reforms that were introduced by uh, by the government, including many Likud members. So there were more than 60% against it. So they disagree with that. But even more importantly, you know, consensus sounds like a wonderful word and a compromise is always something good in negotiations. But there are certain things that are the heart of democracy, liberal democracy, that you can't compromise. There is no half pregnancy, there is no half democracy. And, uh, you know, what Mike mentioned earlier, how do you select uh, judges? Uh, whether people that are were convicted of, of, of corruption or fraud, not one serving government, that, uh, that, that the prime minister that facing a trial, as we speak, for three serious cases of, of, of corruption, at least would suspend himself. You know, things like this, or the, the Knesset wanting in, 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 in a very simple majority what override the Supreme Court, this is at the heart of it. And how can you compromise it? If you compromise there, you can actually say goodbye uh, uh, to to democracy. And back to your question about mm-hmm. the militia, I think this is one of the most dangerous development over the last week. Because not only the idea of, of, of such a national guard, which is yeah, there's a private militia, but who is going to be in charge of it? If someone that was already convicted of supporting uh, uh, terrorism, at had conviction, 53 charges against him, Mr. Ben Gvir, is he the one is going to be in charge of something which is experimental in, in Israeli security? You can have a discussion whether it needs a national guard. It doesn't need a national guard. But the idea, A, that it was made as a concession for the most far-right party ever to be part of government to allow not, not, not to stop this, this, this judi- judicial uh, coup, but only to hold it for a few weeks. So this is a concession uh, to Benville, and then to hand in someone that, you know, his supporters, many of them are actually uh, involved in violence against Palestinians, actually terrorism against Palestinians in the West Bank. I think this, this, this is a completely mad idea. Uh, Mark Reg, if I look at the statement from the, the Prime Minister about the, the creation of this National Guard, uh, and it looks like we have a 90-day period now where the heads of various securities agencies in, in Israel are going to, to review this proposal. I hate to make you be the prognosticator once again, but what, what are you watching for over these, these next three months as these discussions take place? First of all, the, the, the National Guard was established by the previous government, uh, the government of uh, the center-left of Lapid and Bennett. Uh, and so I don't think there's particularly something right-wing about this. Uh, uh, I, the discussion how it'll actually be formed under whose authority, that's still pending, and I don't want to don't want to say what, what hasn't been said. I, I'd like to talk about uh, the issue of democracy, though, because mm-hmm. democracy is the rule of law, and we all know that. But democracy is also that there are elections and people make decisions. And uh, you always have tension in all democracies between uh, the legislative branch, the executive branch, and the uh, judiciary. And the feeling amongst many people in Israel is that the pendulum has swung too much to, towards the judiciary and, and it has become the overpowering branch of government uh, uh, with supreme power over the other two. And the idea is that the pendulum should uh, uh, swing back. Now, one can argue about this. It's a legitimate issue to argue about this. But if Israel was, let's say, to give politicians a greater 
role in choosing judges, that would make us more like the United States. You can say it's good or bad. You can argue the pros and the cons. But to say it's the end of democracy, I think, is a bridge too far. I think that's pushing it just, just beyond reality. There are many countries, Western democracies, where politicians have a say in the appointment of judges. I, I don't think it's the end of the world. On the override bill, which is the ability of the Knesset to, to uh, overrule a decision by the Supreme Court. So one of the leaders of the opposition, one of the most prominent leaders of the opposition is Mr. Lieberman, mm -hmm. who says he will agree to 70. So the current official position of the government is 61. So if you find a compromise, 65, 66, 67, is that also really the end of democracy? I think sometimes these issues are overstated, and maybe that reflects the very highly partisan attitude in Israeli politics at the moment, where it's either black or white and there's, there's no gray. And to be fair, a lot of the people against the judicial reform, it's not, I don't think it's as much about the judicial reform. They don't accept the government. They want to bring the government down, which is legitimate in a democracy. That's their right to try to bring the government down, but they should say it. That's Mark Regev, uh, former senior advisor for foreign affairs and international communications to Israel's prime minister, now of the Reichman University. Also, this is Yossi Meckelberg. He's an associate fellow of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House, a London-based think tank. And Michael Brenner is with us as well, director of the Center for Israel Studies at American University. Uh, here's a question that we got from Kay in Arizona. I'm very interested to know why Israel does not have a constitution. I don't understand why on earth, after all these years, they have no constitution for their government system? Michael Brenner, a basic but an important question there. I'll let you take a stab at that one. I was just thinking the whole time. We, we <laughs> didn't talk about the core issue here. Israel here we are, does not yes. have a constitution. Um, although uh, the UN resolution, which bases Israel is founded, said it should have a constituent assembly that would draft a constitution. Israel did have a constituent. The first parliament of Israel was called a constituent mm. assembly. That was in 1948. However, uh, for various reasons, one... Um, that is the rift between especially the secular and the religious um, was already there back then, even though the religious forces were much smaller. Um, they, they, you know, couldn't quite agree. But it was also the reason that uh, Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion then um, saw certain advantages um, that he could just um, rule a little bit more independently without a constitution. In any case, they did not follow up on having a constitution. What happened is several basic laws were issued. And um, there, was, there were some legal scholars who would argue that the um, uh, sum of all of those basic laws together is a constitution. But it is very different uh, from constitutions in almost every other country. First of all, uh, it's easy to override. Um, the Knesset, the parliament, can uh, override a basic law with the same majority, uh, almost all of the basic laws with the same majority as any other law. So uh, that is why. But it's also not a formal corpus like a constitution in the United States or most other countries. Um, and that might be. And there were efforts to, to draft a constitution uh, in modern time, uh, in in the recent uh, in, in, in the two, early 2000s, there was a serious effort under the then chairman of the um, Law and Constitution mm -hmm. Committee, Menachem Ben Sasson. They were very close in 2009 when uh, Prime Minister uh, Olmert was had to go because of corruption charges. Um, 
maybe this is a chance to, and I hear these voices in Israel again, maybe it is a chance to uh, talk again uh, about a constitution in Israel. We're discussing the political and social unrest in Israel. Coming up, we'll continue our conversation and hear from a Palestinian writer living in Jerusalem. Plenty more still ahead. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the conversation with this message from Jesse in New York. I'm glad to see that Israelis are marching for their rights to democracy. It begs the question for me, do Palestinians also have the right to democracy. Palestinians in Israel experiencing this country's current moment with a different perspective and joining us now to talk about it is Jalal Abu Hatter. He's a Palestinian writer, civil servant based in Jerusalem. And Jalal, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start with with your perspective on the demonstrations that that we've seen. How have they made you feel? How important are they uh, to you as you watch them unfold? I'll begin by saying that I think the first guest uh, was, uh, he uh, he accurately described the the lack of interest, perhaps, in engaging with the protest, the lack of interest from Palestinian society, whether it's uh, occupied uh, subjects in the West Bank and Gaza, those in Jerusalem, or those Palestinians holding Israeli citizenship. I think the there there was a vibe that it's, it's not a welcoming movement for Palestinians. And I think the earliest days when Ayman Oudi, the member of Knesset and the head of uh, the uh, the major Arab coalition, um, in, in the in the Knesset, he he was booed off stage and faced a bit of a scuffle. Um, that was one of the earliest protests, and there there was this understanding that the Palestinian flag itself is not a welcomed symbol, and people just didn't really pay it too much attention, or perhaps didn't really think too much of it. Uh, but on the contrary. We've been following, perhaps from the from observing and watching, watching what's going on, and it's um, it's something remarkable when people rise up and protest for whatever reason. Uh, when people, when you see a social movement creating such uh, an impact on on the politics of of a state or a place, it's something to watch and follow closely, and perhaps be critical about as well. And this is what uh, I wish to do here. These demonstrations happening while violence in the occupied West Bank and occupied East Jerusalem has spiked in recent months. There's been near-daily Israeli arrest raids in Palestinian areas, a string of Palestinian attacks. Uh, On Monday, two Palestinian men were killed by Israeli troops during a raid in the occupied West Bank city of Nablus. Uh, On Thursday, human rights attorney and Palestinian citizen of Israel, Sosan Zahir, spoke to Morning Edition about the judicial overhaul. The issue here is that you cannot talk about democracy when there is occupation. It doesn't matter if you are a Palestinian citizen or a Jewish citizen in Israel. You cannot talk about democratic values when there is occupation. 
we are regarded as the other without relation to the protest. So all the more so when the protest began, we didn't want to be part in a national protest when we didn't feel that we are part of the nation. The difference between us and the Israelis is that Israelis thought they were living in a democracy. Israelis believed that Israel was a democracy. And so part of it is that they are fighting for the image of democracy that from our point of view, they never really had. Shalal, I'd love to get your reaction to that comment made uh, on Morning Edition. Um, certainly, this is the understanding we, we all agree on. Uh, when Israelis are protesting to save democracy, my, my first reaction is that what democracy is it to save? Like It's not a democracy that I've experienced or any other Palestinians experience in this place. And there are millions of us who do not believe this is democracy. And this is a reality we live through. This, uh, If it's a, a democracy for Jews only, it's an ethnocracy. It's not even a democracy in the basic understanding. Um, so saving democracy that does not exist is not something that um, we understand because perhaps uh, those who live under occupation are completely governed by Israeli military authorities for, for over five decades, and they have no say in what goes on in Israel. Myself, as a Jerusalemite uh, resident of Jerusalem, that's my uh, legal status. Um, I'm a, I could lose my residency at any time and I have no say in the governing politics of, of Israel. Uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel themselves, um, perhaps the two million of them, they are regarded as second-class citizens, and this is enshrined in the law that the, even the Supreme Court of Israel has uh, has supported the nation-state law of 2018, which enshrines um, Jewish settlement as the the, the goal to uh, to advance and prosper, uh, to um, promote in in the land of Israel, and as well as basically. Uh, this uh, degrading Arabic, the language, and Palestinians who live here to second-class citizen status. So for us, this is not a democracy. Uh, when we see people saving democracy, it's just not a concern because I believe um, it's good that people are protesting, but perhaps uh, I have nothing to do or say with this because it will not affect me the same status quo that will continue that people are fighting for in the streets of Tel Aviv. The status quo will be violent against uh, me and my, and my people. Uh, it will mean a continuation of policies that have uh, entrenched apartheid and uh, occupation and uh, land theft and basically uh, unequal laws that govern this land that we live in. So wh whether the camp against the government or the pro-government camp wins in this uh, pro following this protest movement, uh, it will be. It will mean the same violent reality that we will continue to live in under apartheid in this place. We, we've talked a lot about the, the protests and their significance to, to you. I wanted to ask you just about the, the proposed overall of, of the judicial system itself. Um, is, is it sounds from what you're saying that um, those changes would have a negligible effect on on you? But how, how have you thought through that or thought about what the effects of that overhaul might be? Uh, certainly, um, there is no doubt that. Things could get worse. I know the right-wing Israeli, elect, uh, the Israeli right-wing talking points uh, that the court is the Supreme Court is responsible for uh, putting uh, putting breaks on perhaps their their agendas that involve uh, uh, f faster uh, ethnic cleansing in Jerusalem, perhaps, and the taking over of Area C of the West of the West Bank, de demolishing, uh, destroying Palestinian homes in Area C and other policies, the right wing are wanting to uh, override the Supreme Court uh, and the laws of Israel to advance their agenda. 
I get that. But at the same time, the the agenda is progressing. The set, the settlers are getting what they want. Uh, Palestinians are not able to expand or build properly in any of Area C, which is technically more than 60% of the West Bank. Uh, in East Jerusalem, the situation is dire. There has not been any development or building uh, of or accepting new master plans or uh, per perhaps granting of permits for the natural expansion of the population of Palestinians in Jerusalem. And we witness in this city the reality where um, the Jewish uh, citizen is, 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 a, is a preferred uh, individual who gets uh, th thousands of uh, new homes built in the city and sponsored by the government every year, while Palestinians are not able to uh, get the most basic development for them to continue living in the city. So there, there are many um, aspects that, um, and in the rule of law of Israel, that really are against Palestinians in the Supreme Court that they're trying to defend in this protest movement. The Supreme Court itself, just last year, they green uh, it, it greenlit the ethnic cleansing of uh, uh, several communities in Masafariyatta in South Hebron, affecting a thousand, I think, and three hundred Palestinians. Uh, the same Supreme Court is urging the government to take action on Khan al-Ahmar community uh, east of Jerusalem uh, to relocate it and forcibly displace it. This is a war crime, of course, to forcibly displace people living under occupation. The same Supreme Court has um, ruled uh, many, many rulings, perhaps, that are entrenching the reality that we live under. So I don't really believe that taking power, it, 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 it won't be escalating the situation into a worse direction. It, it already is a negative way and people have to confront the occupation and confront the reality of apartheid first and foremost before I believe that uh, th there would be like a, a shimmer of hope in this protest movement. Jalal, last question here. I think we've heard from each of the other guests just about the, the importance of this moment, uh, its, its historical importance. And I'd love to get your sense of that as well. I suppose one can be pessimistic or uh, feel like the, the, the protests that are underway won't affect you, you and others whom you know. Uh, but when you look with sort of a broader sweep at, at history, do they, do they strike you as important? Does, does this moment strike you as an important moment here uh, in, in history? Certainly. This is something I, I cannot, of course, deny in any way. Um, I've witnessed, I've, I've not witnessed, I've followed on protest movements across the globe. I've studied uh, many uh, social movements in history and just observing what's going on here um, and what like, the numbers that are going to take into the streets in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem and other places. Um, I'm naturally an optimistic person and I do believe that when people are experiencing such a movement and where people are um, being exposed to new realities, political realities, and um, they would get some sort of uh, transformational experiences, perhaps in in those days, and eye-opening experiences. That I really hope that I really hope that uh, this eye-opening experience would um, would focus on perhaps mm. uh, fighting against the the biggest evil in this place, which is apartheid and. Uh, the the continued occupation of Palestinian territories and perhaps the inequality that people live under in this land, I do believe that such a protest movement, such a social movement, will change people's hearts and minds and will affect them in a way that could benefit the movement for social and civil liberties, perhaps for all of us in this land between the river and the sea. Shalal, thank you very much. Shalal Abu Hatter, Palestinian writer, civil servant based in Jerusalem. And... Um, Let's head to our voicemail box once more. This is Cannon in New York. The most effective role that we can have in the Middle East 
and in other parts of the world is to address democracy here in the United States. Since the January 6th insurrection, we have left the rest of the world wondering, is democracy all that Americans have made it up to be? We, at one point, were leaders in the power of democracy. And since January 6th and the insurrection, and what continues today of people attempting to destroy the goodness of our country, we have a less pivotal role in the rest of the world, and particularly in the Middle East. Let me turn to you, Mark Regev, on that comment from Cannon there. It's been reported that last week President Biden sent Netanyahu a strong private message to halt the proposed reform. And when asked last week if he would allow Netanyahu to visit the White House, he responded, quote, not in the near term. Speak, if you would, to the U.S.'s role here uh, as all of this continues to develop. Well, the protesters in the streets of Israel carry signs saying, Uh, we should return to the principles of Israel's Declaration of Independence, uh, those original principles of democracy and freedom that the country was based on. And what is sometimes forgotten in in Israel's first decade and a half, the United States actually was very, very standoffish. Mm. The United States under Eisenhower uh, thought that if you were too friendly to the Jewish state, then you would push the Arabs into the Soviet side of the Cold War. And once again, uh, American uh, uh, administrations uh, in those early years kept Israel at arm's length. Uh, and, and just last month, uh, on the anniversary of the war in the Ukraine, we saw President Biden embrace the Polish leadership, which also is, is not known for its liberalism and its commitment to liberal values. Hmm. So I think there's a certain amount of cynicism sometimes when Americans can lecture us on democracy. Uh, our democracy is not perfect, but neither is yours. And I think a conversation that is more a conversation between, you know, people than than one side having some sort of moral superiority on the other. I did want to respond to to our Palestinian friend, though, because I understand, of course, where he's coming from. But Palestinians have have their own government, both in Gaza and on the West Bank. And Gaza is led, as you know, by Hamas, which is an autocratic theocracy. And on the West Bank, they have a president who was elected for four years in 2005 and who remains in position and, and not known for having a free press or an independent judiciary or, or anything about democracy. So when Palestinians focus their democratic fervor on Israel, so, okay, I'm willing to hear their criticisms. Mm. But I would also like to hear sometimes a bit of their own accountability of their own administrations, which, which lack far behind any sort of democratic development. And they can't blame Israel for that. I'm sorry. Michael Brenner, I'll give you the last word here. We, we have seen talks reemerge, brokered in part by, by the United States, uh, on issues of the relationship between Israelis and, and Palestinians. And maybe I could use that as sort of a jumping-off point to just get your perspective on where things go from here, the quality of the conversation that's taking place, yes, among uh, politicians in Israel, but also sort of in the region more broadly. Well, I think it is a moment where the United States voice is really very important. And I think President Biden has, uh, has, 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 has seen that and has also reacted in a way that says, you know, um, we stand, we, there is a very deep friendship between the two peoples and the two nations. Um, but there are also certain, um, certain conditions we set. And and I think that that was very important. So um, I would say this is a moment which is crucial in the relations between the two countries. Uh, it's a moment where we see a shift in the Democratic Party, 
uh, more towards Palestinians uh, than Israelis. And it's, it's, it's a moment where we see that supporting Israel is not as easy as it used to be. Supporting Israel means also which Israel. And I think that's very important to say we're supporting a Jewish and democratic state, which is Israel. No doubt this conversation will continue in the weeks and months to come. Michael Brenner, thank you very much for your time. Director of the Center for Israel Studies at American University. Yossi Meckelberg, Associate Fellow of the Middle East and North Africa Program at Chatham House. That is a London-based think tank. And Ambassador Mark Regev uh, with Reichman University. Also, formerly the Israeli Prime Minister's Senior Advisor for Foreign Affairs and International Communications and Israel's Ambassador to the United Kingdom. Thank you all very much. Today's producer was Lauren Hamilton. The program comes to you from WAMU, which is part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm David Gura. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology, hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with its original podcast on investing. Each week, you'll get thoughtful, in-depth analysis of both the stock and the bond markets. Listen today and subscribe at schwab.com slash on investing or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a high stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.